Hey everyone, I'm Josh. I'm Joe, and this is Video Dropbox, a movie chat podcast where your hosts take turns challenging each other to browse a unique section of the video store and select a film in under one minute. If a title is not selected in time, we'll have to hit the video Dropbox and defer to what's in the basket. So, Josh, to recap, last episode, you challenged me to 90s erotic thriller, and I chose Wild Things, which we're going to talk about today. But before we do, I would like to talk about the genre uh, as a whole, uh, because I'm actually pretty unfamiliar with this specifically. Uh, I'd, I'd watched Basic Instinct and Bound and maybe Poison Ivy at some point, but I'd mostly avoided this genre and... I don't really know why. Probably as a teenager, I didn't watch it because just with anxiety, the sexuality just made me completely terrified and overwhelmed. And then I never went back to them because I think at the time, all the trailers and the marketing of these films, they have a similar way of selling themselves. So I didn't really know what to do or where to start. But I was looking into where this genre got its start. The precursor to 90s erotic thriller seems to be sometimes traced back to the 40s noir film Double Indemnity. I I know the name. I I can't tell you for sure if I watched it. I feel like if I did see it, it would have been in a film class and Mm. it may or may not have been one that I fell asleep with. Um, Just because I had a very late night class that was often, you know, working all day and then went to class and it was dark and I got real tired. So, Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think that makes sense to have it start kind of in these old noir films because that's essentially what it is. It's noir with the eroticism undertones or not really even undertones. Uh, <laughs> but then there were some big movies following that through the decades, like Vertigo and Lolita makes sense as having that kind of style. Uh, but it's really not until the 70s where I feel it really takes off and it really makes sense to me like to see that progression uh, with both. There was a Spanish filmmaker, Jess Franco. He made over 170 films in his lifetime. And this was completely up his alley of what he was doing. Venus and Furs as his most popular one, I believe, at least in America. And also the Italian giallo subgenre, because a lot of that, like Sergio Martino, uh, some of Dario Argento stuff really fits into that as well. And then we have going through the 80s, there's Brian De Palma, all the work that he's doing. Big Heat is a big one. And then we get to Fatal Attraction in 1987, which I think was the kickstart of the, I mean, it wasn't 90s, but 90s erotic thrill. I feel like that's maybe where the subgenre was coined. The Michael um, Douglas crossover. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, he's in like four of them, isn't he? Mm-hmm. I feel, yeah. yeah he he kind of really star. started with that. And then Basic Instinct, obviously, was the big one. But yeah. But to catch up, coming into this episode, I kind of rapidly watched as much as I could. So I also watched Single White Female, The Crush, Sliver, Jade. I couldn't find Fear, but I was watching lots of clips of that yesterday. And that seems crazy. So you've never seen I'm, Fear? I've never seen Fear, no. Oh, man, Joe. God, I got to start writing these down. <laughs> it's crazy because it's so good. Josh, what what is your experience with the genre? Well, and before I get into it, I have to ask, how how did you feel? Like, what were your thoughts in seeing some of these films? You don't necessarily have to give them all reviews, but like, did some stick out? I, you know, a single white female really stuck out for me because it was taking itself seriously but doing a good job at it. Whereas I feel like Jade and Sliver are kind of taking themselves a little seriously too, but they're ridiculous. I 
prefer like wild things knows it's ridiculous and it's leaning into it and the crush too completely ridiculous movie and that's fun <laughs> but i thought that single white female i i guess i appreciated that one most out of all of them it was uh, an actual thriller where yeah. i feel like the other well same with basic instinct that was that's probably why i think it's one of my top 10 films i, I don't remember if i put that on my top 10 list but like it for sure is up there just because it isn't too I mean, it's over the top in some ways, but the fact that the main character just effortlessly gets away with this ambiguous sort of crime, like it's it's ambiguous whether she gets away with it or not. Like, I don't know. I just absolutely love it. And I think that's why I love the genre because there are those moments where it is serious enough and has sort of these what the fuck moments. Like as silly as Sliver is, I do really love it because there's this aspect of voyeurism that really like oh, yeah. traumatized me as a child. And <laughs> I'm not even lying. Like there were years I've talked about my fear of mirrors before, but like that did not help. I mean, Poltergeist three really like fucked me up with that. But like then when I watched sliver, it was like, okay, well now maybe there aren't ghosts behind the mirror, but maybe there's just actually a camera that's just watching me yeah. do anything. I don't know. I just, I think that's one of my appreciations for, for the genre. And yes, I do have to echo your sentiment is that I love The Crush because it was, you know, the height of Alicia Silverstone, but also, I don't know, it's just, it's unlike any movie I've seen or had seen at that point, you know. Did it's you like see a, it when it came out or like around that time? I guess I it was like early 90s, so maybe not then. But. Yeah, I want to say that it was maybe like a video store rental. Like I sure. definitely own the VHS and that cover, the, the cover art is just very iconic. Yeah, I think yeah. that's, I remember that from the video store, yeah. Like all of these films, I think they all just have that iconic box art. I remember always being intrigued by Jade because I think that trailer was on a lot of VHSs before the movie. And I remember that cover too. Yeah, and that's one that I actually haven't seen, surprisingly. Yeah, it's not my I, favorite. <laughs> I've heard it's kind of the nosedive at the end because that's the last of the Esther House films, right? Didn't Joe Esterhouse, who did Showgirls? Oh, yeah. I I think that was the last one he did. I think it was kind of his last send-off middle finger in the air. Like, here, give me my money. I'm out of here. And that was done. Plus, I don't really find David Caruso sexy, so it's hard for me to go into that thinking, ooh, you know, like at least Michael Douglas, like he's good to look at. And any of those other leading men, I mean, Carrie Ells and and Crush, Mark Wahlberg and Fear, there is a notable male in Single White Female, isn't there? Oh, there's Steven Weber. Yes. He's he's not part of it, but yeah, I mean, I'm a Oh, is he the, no, he's not the queer best friend. He's the, no, he's the boyfriend. That's why she gets the new apartment because she finds out he's cheating on him. That's right. Is he the one that gets the shoe in the eye? He is indeed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One of the reasons I do really love a lot of these movies is I do, I did find some great articles that kind of touch on some of my sentiments, but the first thing that comes to my mind, because I knew you were going to ask me this, like what is with my obsession or love of 90s erotic thrillers is that I have mentioned before that I grew up religious. Mm. I was in like a private Lutheran school, although it was interesting because at the time we had a cable box you know, back in the day, like like a universal cable box located mm. in our backyard. So whenever the people would need to hook up their cable, the cable guys would come into the backyard and have to like manually like hook up lines to like access basically the cable to like go into whatever these houses, surrounding houses. Oh, I didn't know they just dumped it in someone's yard to... 
Yeah, it was like just this big cable box kind of in the corner of our yard and it huh. like serviced sort of the area. And so my dad, being the thrifty man he is, found out how to hack that and give us free HBO. Nice. So while I was raised in sort of a private Lutheran environment, we did have HBO. And at the time, HBO had a knack for those 90s late erotic thrillers. Oh, sex, yeah. Real, it, real sex type shows and content. Yeah, it was kind of like pre-sex in the city and sopranos it was the steamy network yeah it was sort of an anything goes and it was a big no-no and you know obviously you'd have to stay up late to watch it and for a while when i was a kid obviously i didn't have a tv in my room but as i got older and kind of in the mid 90s i feel like this is when i started to kind of see some of these like not only just seeing the covers at the video store because i lived there religiously but then i would kind of start to tune in like if i stay up late there'll be something on tv that i shouldn't be watching and i knew like my parents were in the basement watching an actual movie down there and so i could just kind of watch this content and not do anything you know terribly sexual but i just my curiosity was really piqued because i i wasn't familiar with this content and again i went to a private lutheran school so our sex ed was literally like don't have sex and that's it there's no details nothing so i have no idea what the context of sex is at all i just knew what i had kind of seen in these movies which seemed very like over the top and Mm -hmm. steamy and and sexy and Every now and then you would see, so obviously, you know, the draws, especially as I got older, would be like, ooh, with friends, like, come over and we'll watch HBO. And it was always just like, ooh, you'll see the naked women. But like me secretly being closeted, I was like, well, if two people are having sex, you inevitably have to see a man naked too, right? (laughs) And so as crazy and fucked up as that sounds, I think that was my allure. Like it was sort of my gateway into like figuring out my sexuality and not quite understanding what this allure was to like some of these movies. But that is another huge reason why I think I gravitate towards Sliver. While it's not a great movie, Billy Baldwin all day, every day. I mean, like (laughs) something about his character as creepy and fucked up as he is at the end, he's incredibly sexy. And that movie, I think out of all of them, is the only one that I feel like had the balls to just like full on have him walk out naked. Like you don't see full Mm. frontal or anything, but it was just like, whoop, there it is. Like, you know, you're so used to seeing Sharon Stone. You're like, yep, okay, we get it. Like, they're going to have sex and they'll have all those shots where you see more of her. But like, this one was the first one that I actually really remember vividly. Like, him walking into frame completely naked from behind. Mm. And it was like, that was a moment in my life where I was like, something is happening. I don't know what, but I have, you know, like I've mentioned in the podcast before, I've had a few moments like that in my life. So... While you talk about that, I was kind of wondering what my applicable experience was. And instead of movies, it was definitely Dean Koontz books because my dad would collect those in the Stephen King books. And I was into Dean Koontz reading them too, but he always, like every book had some ridiculous sex scene in it. So it's like, oh, this is feeling naughty reading this book. Really? I would have never guessed Dean Koontz. I... Yeah, there's some... I imagine that maybe he stopped doing it as much when he became more popular. But I remember one specifically called Twilight Eyes, which is just the most ridiculous <laughs> sex scenes I've ever read. Well, circling back to what I was mentioning earlier, I did a little digging and I did see some great articles just out there online. One of the first one was called The Gruesome Demise of the 90s Erotic Thriller from Vice.com. And here are some interesting tidbits that I found. The women may be villains, but they also aggressively reclaim the word slut and they tend to be cheerfully promiscuous. And while I don't really love them stating slut, I found that 
pretty prevalent, at least that I like that it's basically a statement saying like these women are reclaiming their sexuality and they're unapologetic for it. And they also, it also says these women actively reject domesticity in all its form, sniping about hating regrets and holding intimidatingly high-powered careers as stockbrokers and novelists. Mm. They're a man's worst nightmare and there is certain power in that. And so I think, again, when I think about my love for these films... And I would say just the queer culture, like a lot of queer males do gravitate towards strong female protagonists. And while I guess maybe you'd call these antagonists, some of them, I think that is sort of my allure to this genre is that you're so used to seeing like the typical male dominance that when the genre flips, it becomes more interesting. And I think that's also one of my like draws towards this. It's basically, you know, this article does say like the bad behavior can be refreshing. They turn men into pliable playthings, and the punchline of almost all these films revolve around one idea. Men are basically stupid, blinded by sex and helpless in the face of it. And so another article that I found was The Rise and Fall of the Erotic Thriller, Den of Geek. I found it interesting because I was kind of wondering, like, I know you covered a little bit of like the earlier stuff, but I was kind of wondering like what happened because it just kind of seemed to go away. And I think the gist of it was one, the internet kind of destroyed the allure of it because now people don't go to these movies to sort of get their kicks. Like I was talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. it seemed like now once the internet was available, people stopped you know, watching these films. And so they became less exciting. And once you have free video porn. Yeah, exactly. I had almost kind of forgot about the 2000s era. And it said the uh, erotic thriller limped on into the 21st century with movies like Unfaithful and In the Cut, the Meg Ryan film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I honestly haven't seen either. I think I have In the Cut in like a triple pack of something. (laughs) I haven't watched it. I really, I have it earmarked just to watch mm-hmm. it at some point. But again, this is Den Geek is is quoting that Basic Instinct 2 is kind of the nail in the coffin for the for the genre. It had been like long planned and limped along forever until it finally came out and I actually don't mind it and that's kind of what inspired this pick is because I was flipping through cable channels and it was on and I was like, "Oh shit, I forgot about this." So I don't know. That was a long-winded way of basically saying why I really enjoy the 90s erotic thriller genre. All right. So to get into Wild Things itself can get into some consumer and critical results. So Wild Things opened on March 20th, 1998 at number four in theaters. Can you guess what number one was at the box office? Oh God, 98. It's, it's March 98, so it's early in 98. So it is just about three months to the day uh, that Titanic opened. So Titanic is still oh, number God. one at the box yeah. office. Number two was Primary Colors, and number three was Leo's Man in the Iron Mask. Oh, two Leo movies on the top. But this still made $30.1 million. For the crew, the director is John McNaughton, best known for Henry Port of, of a Serial Killer. The bigger name, though, is the cinematographer, Jeffrey Kimball, who's done a ton of movies just a few of which being Top Gun, True Romance, and Jacob's Ladder leading up to this. My favorite, though, and we'll get into this more, but one of the true stars of this film, the composer George S. Clinton, he also worked on a film called Wild Thing in 1987. (laughs) Nice. 
And then I'm sure we'll, I don't have to talk about the cast. We'll get into the cast. Uh, in terms of what the critical feedback was, overall, people really liked this movie. I think because of its ridiculousness, which is kind of, I mean, at this point, 98, and what we've been saying a little bit, that people were kind of turning on the genre. But I think like this one, I think Roger Ebert called it that it was kind of cinematic trash, but every few minutes, something new would happen. <laughs> so you go along with it. So... Our buddy Leonard Malton, we had to dip into his movie and video guide from 2000 for this. He said, in South Florida, high school counselor Dylan is accused of rape by rich teenage sex spot Richards and her trailer trash classmate Campbell. Cop Bacon suspects there's a plot behind it, and he's right. This raunchy, entertaining neo-noir has more twists than a pretzel factory. Gorgeously photographed and well-plated, it never takes itself too seriously. Murray is a hoot as an ambulance-chasing shyster. And I feel that's that seems to be the consensus of this movie, that it is, it's so ridiculous that it's really entertaining. In terms of the behind, I feel like there's a good amount of behind-the-scenes stories, but my favorite trivia is that there had been a hurricane, so during filming, the crew spotted an actual dead body in the swamp, and so they had to call the police, and the police just tied the body off to the side until filming was done. <laughs> oh, man. The best behind-the-scenes stuff that I could find was I Googled wild things behind the scenes on YouTube, and I came across the best thing I had ever seen. So I had never heard of Bobby Wygant, W-Y-G-A-N-T, before. Bobby Wygant is an American television news reporter, film critic, talk show host, and interviewer who worked for NBC5 for over 70 years. She is known for her filmed interviews with celebrities. The reason I'm calling her out is because there are individual clips, just little segments, which I beg everyone to YouTube because the two best ones are the Denise Richards and Nev Campbell because they do them separately. She does an interview with Denise, does one with Nev Campbell. She does one with Matt Dillon. She does one with Kevin Bacon. And she does one with the director, John McNaughton. And this is a 72-year-old woman who is interviewing them. And it's just... I just like couldn't stop watching these, especially the first two, like I said, Denise Richards and Nev Campbell, because she asks pretty much everyone the same questions and they're only like four minutes long. But basically her first question is, is there anything that you felt uncomfortable doing when filming this movie? And anyone that has seen Wild Things knows there are very intense moments in this film. I got a kick out of it because, again, this is a 72-year-old woman. You just see the back of her. She's in this little red suit. One of the things that Denise Richards told her is that she feels like her description of Wild Things is scream meets body heat which I thought was really great. Oh, yeah. Nice. That was her description of it. And then she talks about the threesome scene and talking about how, because she's coming off Starship Troopers, I guess, at this point. And it was really interesting because the interview starts with uh, Bobby saying, Denise, I haven't seen you since Starship Troopers. So great to see you. And it's just like this basically grandmother talking to this, you know, her granddaughter about like how great the film is. And I loved it. And I went into it blind, not knowing a thing about it. And I'm like trying to imagine a 72 year old woman watching wild things and what is going through her head. And I, I do love, like at some point in the interview, she does talk to Denise and says about her scene with Nev in the pool. She's like, you know, how do you feel doing those scenes? Like, I don't know how I would feel about thrashing around in that water. Like <laughs> it just, Oh, it had me rolling. And I, I do love like, and out of that, like somehow Bobby got some great tidbits from this movie because Denise goes on to say, well, actually what you saw in film was pretty tame. We, we tamed it down. There was a lot more that they cut out of that film. And I was like, damn, 
I will say the Nev Campbell one, if anyone wants to feel real uncomfortable, like that's the one to watch because while I love Nev Campbell and I think she's a great talented actress, she had some pretty great zingers. So she basically said, and keep in mind, I'm watching them out of order, I'm sure. So like after Denise's interview, I'm watching Nev's and Nev has a quote. This is, if I'm going to commit to a film, then I better commit to it wholeheartedly, which I'm like, good for you. But she also says, I don't feel comfortable doing nudity when it comes to graphic sex or just about box office jaw. And so I just, while I love Nev, and again, this is like in the past, I just, I feel so bad for Denise Richards after hearing that because it's like, that's exactly what Denise Richards did. So basically (laughs) Nev Campbell's like, oh, I have a no nudity clause in my contract and I don't do that. Nope. There is like a lot of the trivia of this film that I found deals with that about their contracts and how tricky it seemed to negotiate around them. It was like a party of five clause in Nev Campbell's contract that she couldn't do any nudity. Oh, really? I know with Denise Richards, I, I think there was like an argument about could she only show one nipple or could it be both nipples? Like all these very weirdly detailed things. And I do remember seeing, reading somewhere, maybe even she said it in an interview somewhere that she originally hadn't planned to be nude and wanted to use a body double, but then inevitably did the nude scenes because she talked to the director and they decided what would make each other feel comfortable. She also drank a pitcher of margaritas. Beforehand, yeah, there's a great Watch What Happens Live clip that Andy Cohen asked, like, how did you prepare for that? And she said, oh, we got wasted. (laughs) Um, But all right, so the film opens. Uh, (laughs) That iconic score. Oh, it's so good, just running throughout. When it opened, I was like, holy shit, I forgot about this. Yeah, might be my favorite thing of this whole movie is whenever that score pops up. In a weird way, it kind of reminds me of Scream. So, yes. So the film opens with this great iconic score. And we transition from the outlining swamp to the Miami suburb Blue Bay. There's a tracking shot POV of the guidance counselor, Sam Lombardo, who is eyed up and down by the female students as he enters an auditorium where he leads the discussion in sex crimes. Because, <laughs> of course, you can't just write sex crimes all in one. He's got to write sex in chalk on the board, let everybody hoot and holler, and then write crimes yeah. immediately after. So in the front row is Kelly Van Ryan, played by Denise Richards, who makes it very clear that she isn't to be messed with and that she's completely obsessed with Lombardo. And in fact, that was probably one of my favorite scenes right out the gate is when that guy sits down next to her and he starts futzing with like her collar and she's like, fuck off. It's just (laughs) so great. It already is just like, oh yeah, Kelly can handle herself and you don't want to actually be anywhere near her. Like if I was him, I would have like got up and walked away, especially during a talk on sex crimes because let's not fuck with Kelly. So Detective Gloria Perez and Sergeant Ray Duquette are introduced and Duquette is played by Kevin Bacon. They're introduced to discuss sexual assault to the students. And this enrages Susie Toller, played by Nev Campbell, who storms out of the audience. Duquette later reveals that he busts her on a dope charge, sentencing her to time with the state. And the reason I phrase it that way is because I feel like they say that a lot in this film. They're like, how did you enjoy your time with the state? (laughs) Like, they don't just say, like, you went to prison, you were locked up. Like, they just constantly say the state. So later that day, Lombardo brings a boat in and it's revealed he's in charge of the school's boat club, which is kind of setting up this other storyline that we'll find out later. Kelly asks him for a ride home and he agrees. Oh, but also let's not forget about that great moment too. Because I can't, I got to get everything in here. And she's just like, is this game for boys or can girls play too? Or something, (laughs) something along those lines. It's, It's pretty great. 
So Lombardo is giving her a ride home, but also then is like, well, I'm not taking you home alone. I'm going to ask this kid, Jimmy, to come too. I, I was a fan of this moment because I believe this is where Smash Mouth's cover of Why Can't We Be Friends in a oh. ska version is playing as well. So. Yeah, the, the soundtrack, which, by the way, makes me really sad that there's not an official soundtrack. It's just the score to oh. the film, but there's no actual soundtrack. But the soundtrack is on point for that era because I think like immediately right before that, there's like Semi-Charm Life yep. by yep. Third Eye Blind. And then it cuts to them like rolling into the gate outside her big mansion to Why Can't We Be Friends. But the uh, sexual tension is on as Kelly reaches over Lombardo, of course, because she can't just like get out of the car and then just put her number in and be like, bye, thanks for the ride. Nope. She's got to lean over Lombardo to put in her code so that she can open the gate. So he pulls up to the house and up on the balcony comes out mom of the year, Sandra Van Ryan in her bra and underwear and her nice little caftan robe thing who propositions Sam, but he politely declines and leaves. And of course, Kelly's not having it. So, and I do love that shot too, where they both like basically go into the house at the same time and slam the door in the same exact way. It's like, okay, okay. So the next day, Kelly and her friend, Nicole, show up to Mr. Lombardo's house to wash his car for charity. And as he comes out, waspy Barbara Baxter, who's kind of a throwaway character, is seen exiting and gets a side eye from Kelly, which is another great moment because she's got those kind of Lolita glasses on and she's looking Mm -hmm. down like, bitch. And then it cuts to this great sexy car wash montage to Lauren Christie's I Want What I Want. Of course, over the top, buckets being dumped on top of each other, spraying each other with a hose. And of course, you know, Kelly's got to be wearing all white because what else do you wear in a car wash? And uh, Kelly tells Nicole to scram after they're done. And she goes into Lombardo's house soaked from head to toe. And there is that probably the first iconic images that I think of when I think of wild things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Where she's just like dripping from head to toe. And I think again that like, like, uh, uh, like is playing and you're just like, okay. And he's just holding up his ticket like, oh. So yes, great imagery. But then immediately it cuts to a distressed Kelly running from the house. And then I love, I don't remember exactly what it is, but in my mind, I think of like the psycho theme. The dun, 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 when she's like running from the house, because I feel like it's this really dramatic music all of a sudden. So the next day, Sandra Van Ryan is thoroughly pissed that her phone keeps ringing because she is trying to bang it out with her boy toy. And I was not ready for this. Like I knew this movie was sexy, but I had totally forgot how graphic that scene is where she's like holding on to her fucking heels while she's riding that. <laughs> (laughs) guy on top and she's just screaming in ecstasy as the phone rings and then she's just like god damn it and picks up it's the school they tell her that kelly skipped out and so she hangs up and then sandra immediately hears gunshots out back and she's like oh fuck there she is so she goes out there confronts kelly they have a heated exchange before they kind of come back inside and kelly confesses to sandra that she was raped by sam and that again is another one of my favorite moments when she's like sam lombardo <laughs> um, Kelly meets with Perez and Duquette, you know, the next day to give a statement. This is really graphic description of like him being behind her and putting his hands down her pants and in and he was inside her in both places. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. oh man, this this movie, I'm telling you, like Prez is unconvinced and thinks Kelly's all making it up and that she's just mad because Sam rejected her. So at school, it's funny because then it cuts to like school and it seems like Sam's the last to know because he's just sitting in his office and all of a sudden a paper plane with a crude illustration Mm -hmm. is whizzed into his office. And then he later finds out from his one remaining sailing student, Jimmy, that Kelly's accusing him of rape. Uh, So he lawyers up and hires 
outlier, Ken Bowden, a.k.a. Bill Murray. So he is by far probably the best part of this movie. I mean, the whole movie's great, but just all those scenes with him were fantastic. Like when Dylan goes down to the office and he immediately has that neck brace on and he's like, what did you do to your neck? And he's like, oh, uh, I had some insurance guys kind of sniff it around. But just everything from start to finish is great. So... When we cut to Perez and Duquette, we're called to, I didn't know what to call this, an alligator attraction slash trailer community. They were called by Susie, who gives them a real hard time. In fact, doesn't she even say like, God, what took you so long? What if I was getting Mm -hmm. fucked in the ass? Like (laughs) something like that. Susie then confesses to Duquette and Perez that she was raped by Sam a year ago after he gave her a ride home. And her story is similar to Kelly's. So yeah, Sam is arrested and given a trial. And Kelly's wiping her tears as she recalls being raped on the floor of Lombardo's shitty home, in her words. And then Susie is questioned by Ken. And it's great because it's revealed that she called Lombardo for help after she was locked up by Duquette. And Ken mm-hmm. points out that according to her statement, that would have been after he raped you. And so Susie cracks under the pressure and reveals that she made the whole thing up and that it was Kelly's idea. And Kelly is pissed. She throws a glass at her in the courtroom. That is my favorite uh, moment of the movie. Which she has the outburst in the courtroom. Yeah, just throwing the glass. In the oh no, court. it's great. So trial's over. Susie ruined it for everybody. So did Kelly. And another one of my favorite parts is they're riding home discussing, you know, Kelly's freak out and how she lied. And as they're talking, Ken and Lombardo pass the van and it's great because ken flips them off in celebration and is honking the horn he's like hey fuck you it's so great bill murray is so great it's revealed that sam and ken negotiate an 8.5 million dollar settlement that's paid out of kelly's trust that she would only have after sandra is out of the picture so sam leaves his job at the high school and is costed by kelly on his way out because of course she's pissed she's like that was my trust asshole and then that night when he goes back to his sleazy hotel it's revealed that Susie, kelly and lombardo were all in on it what First twist of many twists. Also, another reoccurring image is that there are always dirty footprints leading into a room. It's like, you people, wipe your feet. Like, every time someone walks into a room, there's, like, literal footprints. It's like, someone's there. Who is it? And it's her with that champagne bottle, but there's, like, a napkin over it, and you think that she's going to shoot him. And then she's like, woo, we screwed the bitch. And then, then she jumps on him, and then Susie's there, too. And he's like, we can't be seen together after tonight (laughs) and then that's when champagne's flowing the tops come off and everybody's having a grand old time and like i was in eighth grade when this came out so i remember this when it made the video store circuit and people were just getting together watching this as rentals and it was like holy shit i did not expect this especially me coming off scream and oh sure yeah you know like seeing like starship troopers like i was not expecting this with these actresses and actors So we'll get the very sexy three-way. And then next day, Duquette is looking into Lombardo's bank accounts because Snoop Troop here and some money was transferred to an offshore account. So he's convinced that there's more to the story and continues investigating the three. And this starts to make Susie and Kelly nervous. So in a panic, Susie visits Kelly at her home. They start arguing, get into a great dynasty slap fight. Because that's exactly what that reminded me of. She's freaking out. Kelly's trying to calm her down. I don't remember what prompted it. I think Susie slaps her first, right? And then I think Kelly hits her back and then like drags her into the pool and tries to drown her and then realizes like, oh shit, this is a little over the top. 
So I better try to just calm her down. So then they start making out. The best part of this whole scene is like, we got Duquette in the corner with a video camera. And then to top that off, it gets even better than the next, then later the next day, he's like showing the police on this TV in the station, like this video. And I think it is the public defender again. He like comes running in. He's like, are you fucking crazy? What are you doing? Turn that off. At this point, not to spoil things, I guess, but do Kevin Bacon's motivations make sense right now, given what you find out later? I don't think so. Because I'm trying to figure out, is he legitimately trying to figure stuff out at this point, or is this all a show? Because he's putting on a lot of show right now. I think his main goal was to frame the girls. I don't think he was told that there was going to be a murder, and so his, his whole thing was that, like, the two girls actually set it up and or I don't know that something to frame the two girls for something, because I don't know if Lombardo would have just been gone at that point or what. Yeah. I, I may have made a mistake by not going through this film point by point and making like a chart to see if, does that, does this actually make sense for the twist? Do they yes. just keep on adding on twists because they thought of them? It's like, okay. Yeah. Uh, not that it matters, but that was my takeaway is that his main goal was to essentially make it look like these two girls were in on something bad sure. and that they had planned to do X and they were going to be framed for it. Because even yeah. at the end, they say your job was to just frame Kelly to make her look right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm assuming like maybe he would have said Susie if that was always the plan, like if she was around, but yeah. So that then yes, leads to Kelly and a very drunk Susie take a drive to the beach Sam surprises her with a bottle of champagne. As Kelly goes back to the car to get some blankets, she hears Susie screaming in the distance, which I remember this as, a, again, at a younger age. Like, this was actually a pretty effective, like, horrific scene where you just hear her screaming, and then he comes mm -hmm. back with that bloody champagne yeah. bottle. That would be, like, a very Hitchcockian moment if you were going to pick something, like, new mm. noir type thing. But so then, it, you know, cuts to Lombardo wrapping up Susie and they dump her in the swamp and you just see him come back with like a shovel, I think, which yeah. you bury a body in the swamp. Yeah. I guess you can, but anyway. Which I'll, I'll throw it out there. Poor Susie, now stuck in a swamp in the middle of nowhere. Wrapped in plastic too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like at this point you can just believe like he just kind of unwrapped her or whatever. But like, I just kept yeah. thinking because I knew the twist and I knew the ending. Like there's that close up of like her wrapped in plastic thrown in the back seat. Because I kept thinking that. I'm like, did they actually put a body in there? Or is it just something to like a placeholder? And I'm like, oh no, it's her. Yeah. She's got to like sit there pretending yeah. like she's dead, not breathing with plastic wrapped over your face. Yeah. Like, with no teeth, because yeah. Te yeah, it's just, it's crazy. So Duquette and Perez are notified that Susie's gone missing the next day. Duquette questions sailing student Jimmy at the beach, and then they find, like, dried blood and some teeth, and he's like, ooh, you better run along, Jimmy. It's going to be a while. So Perez at this point is like, look, you're over the top. You're filming girls making out. You're in, totally invested. Just drop this. But he refuses. And he asks her to follow Lombardo and basically says like, hey, if the teeth come back and they're not Susie's, I'll drop it. So she's like, all right, great. I'll follow Lombardo. You look into Kelly. And I have to say like, Perez doesn't get enough credit as a character. Like she's fine. She's not like overly amazing, but I do like her, especially at the end because she's just very like effortlessly acting. Oh yeah. Daphne Rubin Vega. 
So Duquette later gets word that the teeth are a match for Susie and he like storms into the Van Ryan's pool house, which I do find a little troubling too, that he like comes up to the gate and he's like, it's Duquette, let me in. And she does. Sander Van Ryan's like, oh, okay. And it's like, lets him in. And then he goes right to the pool house. There's a struggle. You hear three shots. He comes kind of stumbling out. Sandra runs in and then you hear her scream and it's basically implied that Kelly's dead. We cut to Duquette is being let go and loses his pension because we find out that he, this is his second time that he's shot and killed someone. So then we're cutting to, I don't know, like, is it like a tropical island or are we just in Miami somewhere where Lombardo's like out on the beach drinking a beer? And that is what I was saying earlier to lead back to that imagery again. Like, so he's walking back to his hotel room and yet again, there's these dirty footprints leading into his his hotel room. And it's like these people I'm telling you, like, and they're always in Matt Dillon or sorry, Sam Lombardo's hotel room. But then we see the shower and the steam and he opens the door and we find out it's Duquette and you find out that they were in on it. So twist. I'm like Shyamalan. He's just rolling right now. He's just, he, he could never, um, This is also the Kevin Bacon nudity. Yes. And then this is the infamous scene where he just kind of slightly turns around. It's not like a full-on graphic thing. It's just very, like, subtle. You're just like, oh, shit. I was a little disappointed with this scene, though, because the original plan, it seemed, or at least it was proposed, that Matt Dillon got into the shower with him. And that was a twist that they might have had a hookup to. I'm like, ooh, yeah, (laughs) yeah. In a movie with so many twists, why not? Go that extra step. And it seems like, uh, that seemed kind of like uh, you chickened out there a little bit. I could see it just be it being 98. I could 100% see like all the people being like, I want my money back. You know what I mean? Yeah, Even though like, there's all this graphic nudity and yeah. sex. It's just like, like they've, they've pushed the envelope enough and that's just going to take it. Yeah, over that's top. just too far. But yeah, you find out that they were working together and that he was supposed to frame Kelly. And in fact, he even says that. He's like, you weren't supposed to kill her. You just had to frame her, which is kind of like a dick move because clearly he's a dirty cop. So Duquette's there to get his money. And Lombardo's like, hey, look, the transfer takes up to two business days. So let's just enjoy our vacation. Why don't we go out on my new boat? So they're out in the middle of nowhere. Already you should be suspicious because you're like, oh, there's no one around. Yeah. And he tricks him into, I don't know, doing something with the boat and essentially knocks him overboard. But what Lombardo doesn't account for is that he he held onto a rope, climbs back up, they start fighting. And then here's another twist, like an arrow is uh, from a crossbow is shot into his leg and it's revealed that it's Susie. What? Who has one of the worst wigs that I've ever known. I mean, like from the jump, like when I first saw this way back when, I was like, fuck, like that is terrible. Like that terrible blonde short wig. Like, yeah, I don't mind it later, I guess, when she's got, you know, the wrap. But like, yeah, it's just it's just real bad. But yeah, she's wearing bleached out blonde and she's also wearing like a yellow swimsuit, I think. So it's just like the contrast is not yeah, great. Yeah, it's a weird look. But she basically is just like, yo, you killed my friend Davey. You shouldn't have done that. Bye. And shoots him and he goes overboard. And so her and Lombardo celebrate with a drink. And he takes it apprehensively. And she's like, yo, you're going to have to teach me how to drive this boat before I'm going to kill you. So he's like, oh, you kidder. And so he drinks the drink and then finds out, oh, wait, by the way, it was actually poison. I know how to steer this boat. And then right. she just knocks him off overboard. And that's... The end of the movie. Oh no, that's not sort the end of, of the end of the movie. Yes. <laughs> this is like I don't 
I can't think of another movie that I've ever seen this done in where maybe they thought like, this movie is so confusing. We're going to have to just keep cutting into the end credits <laughs> for all these flashback explanations. But to be honest, I actually kind of like the the little exposition. I don't know. You didn't like it? I, will, I won't say I didn't like it. I guess I thought like, this seems unnecessary. No, I, I liked it because there were like little callbacks to things that they said throughout the movie that you don't actually see. And so like one of the things earlier in the film is they were like, Bill Murray's character's like, oh, what the Van Ryans don't know is I have some dirt on her. Apparently a long time ago, Kelly was found out coked out in a hotel mm. and was there for like, days on end. And so one of the first codas at the end of this film was Kelly entering the bar, meeting Lombardo. And she's like, look, and she like pulls out her little bag of Coke. And you're like, oh, okay, I get it. So yeah, mm-hmm. she like was pissed about, it was her dad's death that yeah. set her on a bender. Yeah. She went to this place to get fucked up. That's when she met with Lombardo and they got all messed up. Because I like to believe that that was kind of the first time they actually started messing around. Yeah. Like he was always a guidance counselor, but just was like, eh, you're a student. So the other post-credit scenes I did write is Susie confronts Sam about why he didn't help her out when she was locked up. And then he lies to her and she's like, well, I have these pictures. There's that. Susie Lombardo casing Duquette outside the sleazy bar. And that's when they meet for the first time. You see like Duquette and Lombardo at the bar, Mm -hmm. Uh, which would have been great because there's that scene where he's just like, can I get you a drink? And that would have been great to, again, imply that those two were together. Oh, yeah. Then there's Kelly Lombardo having sex while they're getting their assault story straight. So she's got that ripped shirt before she runs out. Then there's Susie pulling her own teeth out on the beach. This is hilarious. I love this scene. Well, yeah, and it's great. Where's, where uh, Matt Dillon was going to do it. She's like, fuck, God damn it! just give me these things. <laughs> she takes a swig from the champagne bottle and then just pulls her own teeth out. It's great. And then uh, Ray attacking Kelly. And then uh, the last final twist of the film is Susie meeting up with Ken in this tropical paradise and receiving all the money. I'm assuming all the money from the settlement. And then the other thing I was going to mention that I said off the top was for years, for some reason, I always thought that the reason Duquette killed that guy, Davey, the kid Davey, was because he had a crush on Duquette and that he killed him. And And I had to... I had to rewind the line a few times on the DVD and put the subtitles on because she said something about how Duquette was messing around with a woman in the trailer park. And basically what she says is Davey fell in love with his whore. Like the whore part threw me off because I always heard like he fell in love with him. Yeah. And then something, something. But the subtitles spell it out. Like he fell in love with Duquette's whore Mm. who he was sleeping around with. And when Duquette was found knocking her around, he came in to stop him. And that's when he shot and killed him. And then he, and Susie saw the whole thing. And that's why she went to jail is because he busted her on cocaine, uh, sorry, on dope as a way of shutting her up and getting her out of the way. So yeah, why didn't Susie say anything? So I don't know. Again, this was my big, this was my big question coming out of the movie. The whole Davey thing. I was like, what happened? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I didn't follow that. So. Yeah, it's such a minor thing, but it's it's interesting because there's so much detail and story in this, and yet it just feels like there's too much at times. Yeah. Yes. Where it's just like twist after twist after twist, which is the point like of the movie. Get, but when it gets to the boat by the end, I'm like, all right, come on. <laughs> Let's wrap this up. I will say I attempted to watch one of the sequels, actually Wild Things 2, Hmm. long time ago, and it was a very hard watch for me. I think there are like four or five of them, 
Oh. They're all supposed to be taking place in Blue Bay, which I think is interesting because it's like if there's so much going on in Blue Bay, it's like, God, what a reputation. Um, I don't think they have anything to do with each other because the second one, I watched real late at night one time and I was just like, oh, this is just not, I cannot focus on it. And the only reason I really wanted to watch it is because there's this actress in the second one who stars in one of my other, I would say it's actually, um, I don't know if you want to even call it an erotic thriller, but one of my favorite 2000 era thrillers that I've talked to you about before called The In Crowd. Oh yeah. It's Susan Ward. She's, mm. She plays the lead in that movie. So I'm hoping one day we can watch it because it's not a great film, but it reminds me a lot of this kind of wild things type film. And it's uh, directed by Mary Lambert, who did Pet Cemetery 1 and 2. Oh. So it's definitely a, a departure from those films. But So that concludes Wild Things. So how does this hold up since the last time that you saw it? I think I watched this about a year ago because I was feeling oh, okay. the itch to do it. it. It hadn't been that long because my friend and I, we love it. And we talk about, again, the iconic imagery. And I love to send her like Snapchats because she lives in Wisconsin and be like, ooh, look what I'm watching. And she's just like, you are ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I will say, if you were going to ask me, like, how does it hold up? I think it was slower than I remember it being. Mm. I feel like the beginning was like a one-two punch. Like, it it had a really good sort of um, rhythm. And then right about after the trial is when, uh, and not even the, there's the threesome. I think after the threesome, I think that's when things kind of downstep a little. And they they get a little slower. And it's just kind of like, like that whole Duquette thing with him, like, investigating and slinking around and being like, they're lying, they're lying. It's just like, let's get on with it. We don't care. Yeah. Because I say, yeah, the trial is pretty amazing. And then the twist reveal and the threesome is like, oh, it's the big twist. And then, yeah, kind of from there, I would feel that the second half of the movie definitely didn't capture my interest as much as the first half. Yeah. I mean, the most interesting stuff is like everything between there and Susie's death. And then even after that, then you're really like, oh, I don't fucking care anymore. I put it in the middle of the pack of the 90s erotic thrillers that I watched. I would put single white female and the crush over this. I just found the crush's ridiculousness more entertaining, I guess. But I'd, I'd put this well above Sliver and Jade. Well, thank you for expanding my horizons on erotic thrillers. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed. And we have so many more to watch, Joe. We do, yes. So this week's challenge for next episode uh, is me challenging Josh. Now... I initially wasn't going to challenge you with this genre of the movie store so early because I was worried that it would be too mean, but I feel your 90s erotic thriller got me out of my comfort zone a bit, so I thought that I'd return that with you. And remember, also, there is a selection in the Dropbox if you can't think of anything. Okay, the section of the video store you must choose a video from is... Japanese anime film. Okay. <laughs> I know I've seen a few, but I just... All right. Should I, should I start the countdown? Sure. All right. And one minute, go. Okay. So I know for a fact, as I'm even Googling some movies, that I have seen some. I have seen Spirited Away, which counts. Correct? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Studio Ghibli. Um, my Neighbor Tortoro is another one that I've heard a lot of people talk about, but I've never seen. I've never okay. seen Akira or Howl's, Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah. The one, though, that I feel like you've referenced before that I almost want to watch because I've never seen it, and I think you own it, is Ghost in the Shell. Yes, that's, that's in my top 10 favorite movies. So, yeah. 
Let's see, Princess Mononoke. Mononoke. A lot of the Studio Ghibli ones are coming up. I mean, that's a pretty good entry point. To yeah, anime. yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think since I'm so unfamiliar with it, I I want to say Ghost in the Shell because yeah, you... 10 seconds. So. Okay, I, I would say... Uh, let's just do Ghost in the Shell. All right, you sure? Final answer. Yes, final answer. And right. I hope I didn't screw myself because I really almost was tempted to also let you just do what's in the Dropbox because you know the genre way better than I do. Uh, I hope you're well, not I disappointed. Think, oh, no. I, I love Ghost in the Shell, and I'm very curious what you take away from it because I've always thought, because Ghost in the Shell and Akira were two major landmark anime movies you know, in Japan, but also in America. And it, what's interesting with both of them is that they're very complicated movies. It's like their animation style is insane. So again, like that's the big draw and it's just the dystopian sci-fi feel to them. But both of them have a lot going on. And I've always wondered how they actually do function as an anime intro to someone who's not into anime. So I guess I'm curious what you're going to think. I'm dying to know what's in the Dropbox. In the Dropbox... Uh, I was actually tying it in to this week's challenge, 90s erotic thriller. There's an anime called Perfect Blue by Satoshi Kon uh, oh, that is right up that alley. It's about uh, an idol actress or an idol star who is trying to shift into being an actress and she has a stalker and she kind of starts going crazy. But it's very much, I'd dump it in that genre too. Well, damn. And I, thought, and I feel like that's, that's a good entry point for anime as well. Well, I wrote down Perfect Blue because I'm going to definitely try to watch that. I would recommend that, yeah, because I feel Satoshi Kon is a nice entry. He unfortunately died way before his time. Uh, he only made, I think, four movies and a TV show. Well, I'm excited to watch both at some point just because, like I said, I have no experience with this other than that one film. And it's not that I don't like anime I just don't know anything about it. Like, I yeah, don't have any sure. recommendations. I feel like you would be the one to recommend something, and that's why this is a great challenge. I'm looking forward to it. So next cool. week, we'll talk about Ghost in the Shell. And before we leave, I just want to remind everyone that uh, you should please go visit our Video Dropbox podcast page on Instagram or at Video Dropbox on Twitter. If you'd like to contact us, you can reach us at videodropboxpodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on our social media pages. So, Joe, until next time... Remember to be kind, please rewind, and next we'll be meeting to discuss Ghost in the Shell. Hoo-ha.